0: Father, thank you today for your care, your, as it said in the Old Testament, has said love. Uh, just the way in which you have mercy, compassion, we don't even have words to fully describe in our language the way that you love, pursue, care for, are slow to anger with us. And so we want to express our thanks to you and our gratitude to you for the way that you deal with us the way that you treat us as children and invite us into relationship with you. And we ask today that we would learn and grow from the study of the scriptures, that the Holy Spirit would be present on our hearts and that you'd be glorified in our time spent together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this section of scripture is really interesting because it begins with a baptism and it moves into a battle. It begins with comforting words of the Father and then discouraging words three times of the enemy. We have this setup that's going to happen and take place. And what it does for us is it really begins to knock down the disillusion that some people have with this idea of, if I just sort of step into Christianity, I think that life is going to go on an upward trajectory in which temptation and trials and struggles and problems and people, they sort of vanish from my life. But if you've been a Christian, and you've been a Christian in a church for 20 minutes, you learn very quickly that's actually not what happens. In fact, we can expect a quite different experience, and we get this idea even from Jesus here in the Scriptures, And what's going to happen as Jesus moves from baptism to this battle, as he goes from comfort to conflict, as he hears once these incredible words there, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased Trust me, that is the longing of every person. They want to hear these words of affirmation, not just simply from someone outside of themselves, above themselves, God in heaven, but we also crave that on an individual level, don't we? These words of comfort. And yet then he's directly by the Spirit moved into a place of conflict and battle and problems. And it all revolves around uh, these questions of God, are you good? If you're a Christian and you've never asked those questions, I want to prepare your heart. Because at some point, you're going to look at your life, your struggles, your troubles, the difficulties, and you're going to be brought to a place where you say, God, are you good? Or you might say, God, how could this happen to me? I'm your servant. I love you. Why would you allow for this to take place? Or you might say, are you sure, God, are you sure, God, that I can actually trust you? Because I I don't know. This doesn't feel like a situation in which you would actually lead me into. And so we're going to wrestle with this text here this morning a little bit. And I want to give us a godly expectation and a realistic expectation of what walking with God looks like and what it says about who he is And then what it also says then about who we are. Because knowing who you are gives you the confidence to live in this chaotic world that's all around us. So we need to read this text. It's going to completely set us up. And we begin in verse 13 of chapter 3 of Matthew. And we're going to go through 4 right around verse 12. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. Listen, there's a lot that I wanted to talk about on baptism in here. And Jesus being baptized, we're not going to be able to get into all of that today. So if you have questions, come and talk to myself or Michael later. But this is Jesus identifying with this mission. And here's the important phrase that I want us to cling on to in all of this. The heavens were open to him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then, chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, you can also read that as, since you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Begone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering unto him. This text is incredible. And what it does is we've already been prepared to understand who Jesus is through the first two chapters of Matthew. That the genealogy tells us Jesus is a king. That the narrative tells us Jesus is a king. That the prophecy in the narrative that we get tells us that Jesus is a king. But is he the king, the long-awaited-for Messiah? Well, this text begins to point us in that direction as John the Baptist is the first to begin to identify, as he says in John Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This text tells us that this is who John thought Jesus was, the Messiah, the one that their hearts had been waiting for, longing for, that God is breaking forth and coming onto the scene. It's why he even gets into this little argument with Jesus of, I shouldn't baptize you, Um, you should baptize me. I have, I'm not worthy, Jesus. This text also tells us who God, the Father in heaven, thinks Jesus is. He's putting his stamp of approval on this is my son in case you missed it. This is the one that I'm establishing my kingdom. This is the story of God become king through Jesus Christ to rule and to reign. That is the declaration that you cannot miss in this section of scripture. This text also tells us who the devil thinks Jesus is. A massive threat to disrupting whatever kind of rule and reign and authority that he has established and set up since the fall of man, that Jesus coming on the scene is going to be a breakdown. And as the gospels play out, we see where Jesus goes and he brings the light love of God with him. He's casting out demons that the kingdom of darkness is being pushed back as this kingdom of light has entered in. And so it is a proclamation to every hearer, to every first century reader who is getting this letter, I know that we look back on this with a loaded context, and we 've heard the stories, whether you grew up in church or not, there may be some concept of who this Jesus is for them they 're wondering, looking, is it real? who affirms this? who puts their stamp on this? Well, the people around Jesus, the Father, as well as the devil here, is saying uh, Ah, my kingdom is at threat. The very public baptism is a declaration of the sonship of Jesus and the spirit resting on him. And the devil had these thoughts. This is who I believe this one to be, so I'm going to go after him. Now, this text specifically is about Jesus and his identity, which is central for each and every one of us. Okay. Who's ever gone through Mark 1? Matthew 3 or Luke 3 and 4 in a study. The text always, always, always to, I would say, some degree, even in times past when I've taught on it, really focuses on the blueprint for how you to beat sin, right? like, hey, sin's not good. It's causing you to invert on yourself, self-destruct. It's problematic for your lives. It's a disruption into the world around you. It has a ripple effect. So when temptation comes your way to cheat, lie, steal, lust, get, use power in absurd, horrible, awful ways, here is sort of the blueprint in which we combat or battle sin. Now, this text certainly isn't less than sharing that with us, but it's so much more. It's actually part and it's so significant of the arching biblical story from Genesis to Revelation. It is a setup with so many familiar themes to all of us. Like, how long was Noah on the waters for? 40 days. Talks about the 40 days where it subsides. Excuse me, that part, okay? What did he send out? A dove, all right? There's some like linkages to the Old Testament, getting our minds to think. How about Moses, as we're gonna look at this in just a moment. As many people look at Matthew and his gospel as a new exodus, Jesus being the true representative, Jesus being the one that stands in our place, not Moses, and Jesus being our deliverer. And this text, what it does for each and every one of us, where we tend to say, um, what am I going to get out of this today? Look, That's how many Christians approach their Bible. What am I going to get out of this today? That's how Americans approach all of life what am i going to get out of going over to your house what am i going to get out of giving up of my time what am i going to get and this is the context in which we've trained our brains to think of if i invest some, what am i going to get out of it when what this text is primarily doing is it's about who god is and establishes who christ is which then it will impact how we think act live behave trust me on that but if we move too quickly past looking at jesus we miss something incredibly significant that i think is going to encourage each and every one of our hearts and what we're doing this morning is exploring the story of god through baptism and temptation using two previous narratives from the old testament the first is that of genesis 6 through 9 and it correlates to 1 peter chapter 3 18 through 21 in Genesis 6, humans were doing whatever they felt like to whatever degree that pleased themselves. Everybody was acting wickedly, is what we're told in the narrative that is recorded for each and every one of us. So God sends this flood, and there is Noah, and then there are the eight, his wife and sons and daughter-in-laws, who are passed safely through this horrific Now, in 1 Peter 3, it says eight persons were brought safely through the water, baptism, which corresponds to this. So as Noah goes through the waters, the waters subside, they come down. What's the first thing Noah does when he gets off the boat? He's in this new region, new area, but he makes covenant with God which is incredible. He sacrifices, and God comes and covenants with him and says, here is what I want you to do. We get a reissuing of the biblical mandate to be fruitful, to multiply. And it's sort of this do-over. And when you're reading Genesis, especially if you were an ancient thinker, you would have gotten really excited because the world was jacked up, Genesis 6. That's like the best phrase I can use for it. Absolute chaos, anarchy. God looks down on it and he is just going, oh my goodness, it's sorrowful in my heart. He's lamenting over the truth, reality that he created humans. And so you have this new beginning that comes with Noah, and there'd be this question, is Noah the one to restore peace and order to the world around us? Can Noah fulfill the biblical mandate to be fruitful, to multiply, to cause the human flourishing to take place and happen? Yes, God is now covenanted with him. We're excited about this. And then you turn the page to chapter, I think it's 9, and you read that Noah plants a vineyard and he sure likes his grapes. Like, he likes them a lot. And he gets tanked. And, well, his son comes and uncovers his shamefulness and brings shame on the family. And then the narrative spirals out of control. You have Babel being built. You have horrific rulers that are on the scene and it is not going well. No, Noah, Noah failed in the moment of temptation. He just caves. He gives in. Came safely through the waters of baptism, fails. Fails. So God raises up Abraham, and we fast forward all the way to Exodus. And this is intriguing because there's a lot of parallels that happen in Exodus and the beginning of Matthew. Let me just uh, read them off so I don't miss them. If you know the Exodus story, Israel's in bondage, they're in slavery. There's a taskmasters and there's Pharaoh and he thinks he's God. And God begins to then raise up this deliverer. Now, God appeared to be silent, hadn't spoken to Israel for some 200 years until Exodus 2 where it says the cries of the people go up to God and he hears them. He knows the people and he moves on his promises with compassion towards them. God has been silent since the last chapters written in the Old Testament for around 400 years. And all of a sudden, God appears and speaks through the angel Gabriel Mary, you're going to have a son. Cool. What happens? In both situations, a deliverer, a savior to some degree, is born. There's human then slaughter that happens in Exodus. You read of that story in chapters one and two. It happens, we looked at it in Matthew chapter two. Both Jesus and Moses spend time in Egypt. Both the heroes then return and come on the scene. Just as Moses led the people through the Red Sea in baptism. So too, Jesus is coming through the water of baptism only to be what? On the other side and in a wilderness where there's going to be temptation. There's going to be trial. Then Moses moves to giving the law on Mount Sinai. Guess what? In a few weeks, Jesus moves into giving the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Then you have this moment with Jesus later on where he's transfigured all of him. Moses went up, I was reading it this morning, in Exodus on the mountain, and he had spent time with God, and Joshua was next to him. Joshua wasn't in it with him, but his face shines, just his face has to veil it. Also, this is intriguing, in Exodus chapter 32, after the Israelites' golden calf situation, Moses tries to offer himself as a sacrifice for the people. God refuses and rejects it, but it is Jesus who truly gives himself for the people. See, what this setup is doing as we begin to understand the overarching theme of the Bible is there's these heroes or perceived heroes that raise up in the Old Testament. And each and every time we have this thought process of this is who our deliverer is finally going to be. But Moses, Moses he doesn't even need the devil to cause him to be tempted to sin. He just needs angry, grumpy, complaining people. Trust me, road trip with four young children and you might sin, all right? You might speed, you might feed them some extra sugar, right? You might do some things you wouldn't normally do when you've got some grumpy, complaining people around you. Uh, how about Abraham? He just needed disappointment. Discouragement, letdown, and the hot handmaiden he picked up from Egypt. And all of a sudden, he is, in the moment of temptation, failing. Or or David, a man filled with pride as he numbered the people, and let's not even get into his murderous actions with Bathsheba's husband. We have all of these narratives of perceived heroes that we think are going to bring in the kingdom of God, and time and time again, they fail. So what happens? Here's Jesus. He's come through the waters of baptism, and immediately the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that fills you, that fills me, the Spirit moves him in to testing, to trial. The Spirit doesn't test him, but takes him to the place of the wilderness in which the devil is waiting to tempt him. Now, this is very reminiscent I just want to help you with some biblical imagery of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Just like there, are Eve alone with the devil. Maybe Adam, feet off. I don't fully know. We don't actually understand everything in that. But the devil comes to her in this beautiful lush garden and tempts her with, God is withholding something good from you. Jesus, drawn away alone in a wilderness, is now tempted doing the same thing, twisting the words of God, giving this temptation that there's a better way outside of God's way, and planting the idea of suspiciousness of God in their minds and hearts. Because of caricatures, we are trained to think of temptation being just something outright and just in front of us, something very vivid, uh, maybe, like when you happen to show up here and there was a photo shoot going on in front of Brace and Hammer Pizza, if you were here that day, all right? And it was not a sight that Christians are used to on a Sunday morning, right? And that's like our idea of, we'll leave it at that, of temptation. But when does temptation actually begin? It's planting a deceptive idea into your mind, it's beginning an argument with God. Is your commandment really that good? Are you that good? Because the world says there's a lot of better ways to get what I want. And if I follow after that, there's a quicker route to achieving the good life for me. That's what we're tempted in. And so there's going to be this hint of this in here. If you are the Son of God, since you are the Son of God, Jesus, you should not be hungry. Oh, you should then throw yourself off this cliff and watch his provision miraculously take care of you. Because you are the son of God, this is what you should do. And we see how Jesus is going to respond in this in a moment. But what does Jesus take into the wilderness with him? He's not a ghostbuster with a demon-sucking backpack, He doesn't come with a bat to beat the devil over the head. I've seen some very charismatic Christians show up to some very weird events with some imagery like that. Strange stuff. What does he come with? He comes with a sense of identity that was just spoken over him. You are my son in whom I'm well pleased. Now, I don't want to give away the big surprise at the end, but I'm gonna, as you think about this, what has God equipped you with when you walk in to temptation? Identity. This is who you are. And because this is who you are, this is how you respond. It's not a list that we pull out of our back pocket. Oh, check that verse, check that verse, check that verse. But it's this idea of when I know who I am, when I've heard these words that God is pleased, that God loves me, that I am his child, it radically reframes how I come into situations of temptation. And what happens is it comes to this moment of, can I trust you in that moment that you're going to be good? So I don't want to, because I know this story is so familiar to us, to lose the tension of what this passage means. This is truly a heavyweight title fight to some degree of, is Jesus going to be like all of those before him? Like a David, when sin comes his way, when he's tempted that he caves? Like Noah, like Moses? Moses struck the rock and he was angry with the people. Or is Jesus truly going to be the one that says, I'm not going to circumvent the way of God. I'm not going to go outside of his provision. I'm not going to go around his way and assume I know the best way. Am I going to simply trust and honor the fact that God is going to be faithful in my life? And where Satan comes at him in this first way is you've been fasting for 40 days. I'm lucky to fast for six hours and I'm hungry and starving 40 days, Jesus has fasted. The fast is over. And he comes to him, not with sex, not with lust. He says, You should have some bread. Is bread bad? Is bread bad? No, no. I mean, if you're gluten intolerant, maybe. But bread is good. Bread is delicious. And it's kind of an intriguing way that this tempter comes. But what he's coming at with is this question of God's provision and God's care. Because since you're the son of God, why are you famished? Why are you hungry? Let me put this on you. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are a child of God why is life really hard right now? Doesn't he love you? Doesn't he care for you? Or on a larger scale, one of the questions we often get asked as Christians is, if God is so good, why is there destruction and pain and suffering in the world all around us? He should be providing. And often in the large scale, we have some apologetic reasoning that we can give behind it. But what I have found, most of our problems with God are not intellectual, they're personal. And it not until personally that we wrestle with the goodness of God because our lives are falling apart, our banks are falling apart, our marriages are falling apart, our children are falling apart. That's when we begin to go, are you good? When we're finally in a place of need, we ask God, are you good? We question his identity because we've questioned our identity. Serious problem. I teach on identity a lot at this church because I think it is the primary way when we understand who we are and then influences how we live and how we understand and relate to God as children. Causes us then to lean into and trust in that. So this tempter comes and it's saying, be independent, go outside of God to get what you really truly need. Round one, Jesus succeeds. Nope, not gonna do that. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by the very word of God, right? That comes out of his mouth. Temptation number two, test God's care. A lot of people take you to the psalm where it talks about that the Messiah's body, it wouldn't, shouldn't be bruised. You could jump off the pinnacle. So Satan kind of reenacts this and begins to twist the words of God in this section. And what's being prompted here, what's being challenged here, is testing God's care for your life. God's care for your life. Does God really care about you? Does God really love you? I know you believe that. I know you think that. Why don't you go ahead and put yourself in harm's way, Jesus? And if you put yourself in harm's way, then you can really know if God loves you. Does Jesus need to do that? No. Why? Because he just had affirmation from the Father. Do you, do I really need to do that? No, because there's affirmation written all over the scriptures of your identity and who you clearly are as a child of God. That's why we sing about it, celebrate it, revel in it because of what God has done for us. The third thing here is talking about obedience and this whole idea of will you be obedient to the Father or will you circumvent his ways and will you try to bring in salvation on your own terms? See, there's this thought process that obedience is limiting. This is prevalent today. Whereas disobedience is actually liberating obedience to God can feel so constrictive and wrapped around us. And why can't we be sexually free like everybody else determine for ourselves gender? And let's just pick on that for that one second because it's so pushed in our face today. Why does God say to be generous when it feels so much better to get and to have and to create and to make mine? It's so restrictive, you Christians. How dare you think along those terms and put some parameters around the good life, whereas disobedience can feel so liberating. Be free is the message of disobedience. Don't listen or have any authoritative figure in your life. That is destructive, and it's a broken system, and it brings in chaos and anarchy in our own personal lives as well as our culture. So here's Jesus tempted with this, go around the cross and get the kingdom of the world now. And he says, no, no, no. This is incredible because it sets the stage for every other moment throughout Jesus' life when there's obviously going to be temptations Though the Bible doesn't describe it as that ways in which he could react, respond in ways that would bring destruction around him. And yet he continues to choose. He continues to say, I'm going to be obedient to the Father. Now, quickly some reflections for us, because I'm not going to turn this into two. Here's what I want us to think about. In this passage, you and I learned about the inevitability of temptation. There is, for some, this idea that if I just become a follower of Jesus, then I won't be tempted anymore. Or if I am tempted, what's wrong with me? If I have lustful thoughts, if I have greed in me, if there's envy, if there's jealousy, if I have these feelings and emotions, what's wrong with me? Why is this happening to me? And there can be this question with... Is it right that I'm tempted? And here we see Jesus, who is filled with the Holy Spirit, led to the wilderness in which Jesus is tempted, so perfectly filled, so wonderfully obedient, and there is temptation that comes his way. Do not be surprised, Christians, when you are tempted. Temptation allows for us, though, to flex some spiritual muscle, to grow, to say no, because we're under the power, the influence, the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and we're saying yes to what we truly believe is the good life in Jesus Christ, not to, I think this way will be a better way, which in the end, it leads to destruction. That's what's being declared here. Temptation is a way of getting off the path That God has for us. Now, it might just be, as a Christian, a brief stop, because when we sin, he is faithful to forgive us. But temptation is like traveling down 97, and there's not a lot of passing lanes, and you pass in the next hour 20 truckers, and then your kid has to pee, (laughs) and you look behind you, and you're like, I worked an hour to pass all of those guys. And the moment I turn into there, all y'all are going to have to go to the bathroom and to the dog and we're going to need a snack and now I'm going to be behind 25 trucks. <laughs> and what happens? Temptation delays. It's a setback. It's a disturbance. So too, on this Christian life, on this Christian walk following Jesus, when we say yes to Sin disobedience rebellion it 's going to then invert on us and cause some destruction it 's going to cause some identity crisis it 's going to cause some confusion of God do you love, do you still love me and, and yet God is still gracious, as we read in the psalm today. He is still merciful. He is compassionate. Do you know you don't see God get angry in the scriptures until when? Not Genesis. It's the middle of Exodus when his covenant people sin against him. It's the first time you read of God being angry, right? And he's angry because they've broken covenant with him. God is slow to anger. He's gracious. He's compassionate temptation, what the enemy wants to do is derail your life. And what happens when we begin to entertain this idea of temptation, is truly us saying, God, I just don't think your way is very good. Lots I'd like to say. We can talk later about it. Number two, we learn about the nature of temptation in this. The whole idea, the whole premise is, since you are the child of God, Jesus, or if you are a child of God, if you are his son, then You shouldn't suffer. You shouldn't have problems. You shouldn't have pains. This text actually argues against that. It says, no, as a child of God, you can still expect to go through the same ups and downs that every single person goes through. But what you don't want to do is become suspicious of the goodness of God. Begin to argue with the temptation which will then convince you that it is a better way to get what you want. That's sort of the order that it begins to happen in all of our lives. The enemy doesn't want you to believe, know, or understand that you are a child of God. Anybody, you can raise the heart in your hand if you want, ever wrestle with that. Does anybody look at their sin, their life, their mess, and just go, man, can God really love me? And when I begin to go down those roads personally, I begin to think a lot of other things are okay. And it's horrible thinking. This actually counteracts that. It says, no, 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 Don't be suspicious of the goodness of God, that you are accepted in him. Trust him. Number three, temptation builds spiritual muscle in us. We can turn to self-pity or we can turn to praise today. Often, giving into temptation begins with self-pity. It's not going how I want, so I'm going to go do what I want. Self-pity. If you didn't wake up this morning already praising God and being thankful for God and what God is doing in your life and heart, it's going to be very difficult to approach temptation when it comes your way. We have opportunity daily to rejoice in the truth of who God is. And so in those moments, rather than turning to what we think will give us the good life, we turn to God and pray, saying, I may not have that kind of influence yet. I may not have that kind of wealth, or I may never have that kind of wealth or prominence. But I'll tell you what, in spite of that, God continues to be good in my life, and I will praise him as Father, as God, as Lord. I like what Tim Keller says about this idea of self-pity. It says, self-pity is a refusal to be grateful, a refusal to look at all of the things of God has done and all of the things he has given. Self-pity is, Jesus, you're hungry, you don't have bread, go feed yourself. And he could have easily went, yep, that's right, woe is me, poor me. Rather, he quotes and turns to scripture. No, this is what scripture says, this is, sim- this is who I am as well. That's who I am. Finally, as we finish out this morning, what do you carry into the battle of temptation? So temptation is going to, as we, if we succumb to it, give in to it, derail, set back. I think some of the good stuff that God does have intended and planned for us, and we can confess our sin and we start walking right with him. But the question is, is, how do we get to a place where even when temptation comes, we're able to say, no, I don't need that. We don't entertain the suspicious thoughts questioning God's goodness. That means we have to continually remind ourselves, as we read two weeks ago in the psalm, of the goodness of God. I think that's why it's so important Christians get together and encourage one another while it is yet today, so we don't harden our hearts. God's words, not mine, Hebrews. These things are important in flexing that muscle. These things are important in building it up. So when we are tempted, we're able to say yes to God, no to this, because I know who I am. I am your child, and if I'm your child, it means I don't have this thing that I want yet because you have not granted, given, or allowed for me to have it yet. As a parent, I'm an imperfect parent. And as even an imperfect parent, there are things that are great and good that my kids want and desire that I withhold from them and say, no, not now, you're not old enough or you shouldn't have that. And they may go, but why, daddy? Why? I want that thing now because I know it will destroy you. And a lot of us are really challenged in this because there's a lot of good, neutral things in this world that we can use for his purposes. There is things like marriage and sex and children and money, and we can go down the list of great things, and we can look at others and say, I don't have that. Why, God? Why, God? Why, God? I'm going to go ahead and get it on my terms. And inevitably, it'll bring self-destruction into your life rather than saying, God, I'm going to wait on you for this. What if it doesn't come? Well, as a Christian, this is not the only life you get. This is not the only family you get. This is not the only money you get. This is not the only home you get. There is an age to come, and I think all of our hearts are groaning for that more and more daily as we see the turmoil and chaos going on in society around us. When you're tempted about God's provision, about his care, or about his way, you fight with identity. Yes, that means you'll turn to scripture. Yes, that means you'll grab a brother or sister and you'll pray. But you do those things because you know who you are. Do you know who you are? The devil wants you to wrestle with your identity. The scripture is very clear on who that is that he says you are. So as we part and begin to worship God, I want you to approach your day, your week, this time of worship, I'm a child. I want you to approach those moments of temptation as, because I'm a child, this is how I respond to temptation. God will care for me. God will watch out for me. I can trust him in that. Let's pray. God, thank you for this truth and reality that I struggle with, and I can easily and readily admit that. I know the allurement to temptation often comes because I forget who I am in you and thinking I need something or desire something. I just confess that to you openly, God, and I pray that this church would respond in similar ways of confession and repentance where, where we failed. May we also, though, embrace the truth and the reality that we are children and that you've lovingly forgiven us. Given yourself for us. And this narrative tells us you're the hero that we've been long waiting for and that when temptation came, you didn't give in and that we can trust you, believe you, and that you've washed us clean. So God, go before us, open eyes today for people who didn't grasp this, understand this, who try to fight temptation with all their might and all their strength and all their power and feel so insufficient to do so. Empower them with the reality that they're your children. And it's from that position that we live our life. We walk in you. Amen.